The Baseball Lifer Podcast is on the air. Well, hi everybody. Don Wardlow here, Baseball Lifer in Residence. Welcome to this week's show. Coming to you a day early. I've got another commitment on Friday, so we're recording this on Thursday, 20th of April. And this came right off the press, not a minute before we took to the air to record this podcast. The Madison Bumgarner story is over in Arizona. They've designated him for assignment. So whatever he does... The Diamondbacks, the D-backs, they're going to have to pay $34 million. Yes, $34 million, even if he no- never throws another pitch for them or anybody else. So it's been a pretty incredible fall for Madison Bumgardner, Mad Bum, as some called him. And the worst of it was when he crashed that dirt bike that he rented on an off day in Colorado. He's never been the same pitcher since. And just now, he's down to 89 miles an hour on his fastball. And the Cardinals pounded him on Wednesday night for seven runs in not even three innings. And that was the end of Bumgarner as far as the Diamondbacks are concerned. Today's guest is a real character. I had a lot of fun interviewing Craig Colby, who you're about to hear. And he collects hats, and I mean all kinds of hats, baseball hats, football hats, you name it. If there's a hat for it, Craig Colby has probably got it. And we'll talk about that with Craig, if you keep it where it is. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. And my guest has written a book called All Caps, Stories that justify an outrageous hat collection that came out in June of last year. The author's name is Craig Colby. Craig, welcome. Well, well, you're welcoming me. I'm welcoming you. Thank you, Don. And, you know, uh, I saw a lot of credits for writing and production for television for, my goodness, TSN up in Canada, the BBC, ESPN+, Plus, CTV, Netflix. Am I right that this is your first book? This is my first book. Yes, it is. And tell me how the book, All Caps, came about. It came about in the pandemic, like a, a lot of things recently have. I'm an independent producer. I run my own company. A lot of it is freelancing and consulting. And when the pandemic hit, a lot of that work went away. So I would sit down here at my desk, the one I'm at, talking to you. And to my right are a bunch of hats. And every day I would get up and start trying to figure out how I would drum up work. And about a weekend, I said, well, I've got all these hats. I'm just going to wear a different hat every day until the until the lockdown is lifted. So I took a picture of the first hat. It was a Pittsburgh Pirate 1970s uh, stovepipe one, uh, P for pandemic. Took a picture of it and put it on Facebook. Didn't think anything of it. Later in the day, all these people I knew shared pictures of their hats. So every day I would take a picture of a hat, start that in the morning, put it on and people would share their hats. And it was a way that we were connected in a time when 
we were all disconnected. And then I started writing stories about the hats, uh, either where I bought them, what I was doing, people that remind me of things that happened while I was wearing the hats. And people seemed to like that. There was a big response to that. And it went on for far longer than I care to admit. I got to a point where I was worried that the people in my industry would think I was the crazy hat guy. But, uh, you know, I was committed to it. So I hung in there. And 125 days later, I ran out of hats. And at that point, I was afraid of the fallout from this. I thought that, you know, my attempts to jumpstart my business would have actually ended up in curtailing the business. But a funny thing happened. I got all these notes from people saying they were sad it was over, that they they missed it. They liked the stories. And then people started asking me to write the book. And my cousin who writes mysteries in Texas, she asked me to write it. My brother, who's the opinions page editor for the Toronto Star, told me he thought there was a market. He thought it was a good idea. And then my mom, who wrote a column for the newspaper in Thunder Bay, asked me to write it. She had published her book. My younger brother had uh, put out a bestseller with hockey player P.K. Subban's dad. And so when my mom asked, I said I would do it if I got permission from all the people who own the hats to use their hats. And I got it. So we were off. Talk to me about some of these classic hats. Now, I'm a guy, unfortunately, I lose a hat as soon as somebody gives it to me almost. I'm trying to hang on to my uncle's Indianapolis 500 hat. I believe I've still got it, but I just have a bad habit of losing hats. Tell me about some of the hats that that make up the chapters of this book. Tell me about a few. Well, I'll tell you the first hat that's in the book is a Detroit Tigers plastic batting helmet and it's the first hat i call re- recall having although i'm pretty sure it wasn't mine i think it was my brother jim's uh he's older than me he was a huge tiger fan during the 68 world series run but in those times you couldn't find a lot of cloth detroit tiger hats to wear around but they sold the plastic batting helmet ones all the little kids had those and uh, you know my brothers we all wore that one and i picked up one at comerica park to bring home for my kids it's not a very good hat. The kids <laughs> never wore it, but it's just filled with nostalgia for me because it reminds me of those carefree days of my youth when, you know, the Tigers, whether you watch baseball or not, were such a presence because of their success in the World Series in 68 and, and what they meant to, you know, an area of the country that was going through such strife. So there was an emotion attached to that object when I saw it. And that's a funny thing about all of these. And I'll get into some of the details on the hats. You know, you think about a hat, you look at it, and then you put it on and you never see it again. Everybody else sees it. But with a lot of these things, they're infused with the memories of where we were when we got it. Uh, You know, if you went to a baseball game with your father and he bought you the hat, or you took your son and you bought the hat, or you were dating someone and you bought that. Usually when you buy these things, you're, at a place that makes you happy and they're associated with something that gives you warm feelings. So the idea behind the book and even behind these hats is what you're doing when you're grabbing that thing, you're taking it off the shelf, you're putting it on is you're actually grabbing the feeling you have with the hat that, that it brings to you. And then you wear that feeling throughout the day. My fascination with the hats themselves started when I was at the university of Windsor and started going to Detroit tiger games. And you could get some, hats that were not very good 
they were more the trucker style with the mesh back and snap back and they were better than nothing but it wasn't until I started going to Tiger Games and went to a place called Sportsland USA, which was a store just down the street from Tiger Stadium. And for a baseball nut, like I was a Tiger nut, it had magic in it. And some of that magic was the new era 5950 hat, the kind that the Tigers wore on the field. And it was as different from the hats that I had before as the humans today are from the little furry creatures scurrying, scurrying around the underbrush when the dinosaurs ruled the earth. These things were art and architecture. They were fitted to your sides. The, they were made of wool. The front crown was structured beautifully. The, the logos were stitched on. The, for, the brim could form perfectly. And, you know, I spent what seemed like a lot of money to me at the time to get one of those hats. And it was like wearing a crown of fandom because they weren't around all that often. You know, they weren't like having a lid store everywhere. So to have that hat really showed a level of dedication to your team. It showed that it was part of your identity. That's when I really fell in love with, with the baseball hats. And I wore that hat, I think almost exclusively for about four years. That was the first hat I remember loving. And of course I bought it the year the Tigers won the world series in 1984. And I camped out overnight to get tickets to the world series. I went with my brother, Scott, uh, who's a huge tiger fan and my girlfriend, Susan at the time. And of course that is an incredible memory. I'm not sure I still have that hat, but I certainly have its descendants. I have a series of New Era 5950 Detroit Tiger home hats. I always have one in excellent condition. And then the ones that are good enough to wear when you're out for a run or it's raining or whatever, I have those as well. So that's the first one that I truly loved. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with my guest, Craig Colby, the author of All Caps, Stories That Justify an Outrageous Hat Collection. Now. I have a head full of memories about the old Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. And it seems to me from what I read that your feelings for Navenfield, Briggs Stadium, eventually Tiger Stadium, the old place built in Corktown, opened just after the Titanic sunk. Your feelings about that stadium mirror mine about the old ball yard in the Bronx. Tiger Stadium was my favorite place on earth. There's no place that I would rather be at any point since I went there the first time. And I remember walking in there the very first time and trembling. You know, I'd been a sport Tiger fan from afar and they were a tie to my youth, but actually going into a game in September, 1982 and seeing the pillars, walking out into my upper deck, third base side seat, an afternoon game and seeing the blue sky above and that brilliant green grass below and then the tigers running out in those uniforms i was so familiar with the crisp white you know the midnight blue hat sleeves and and logo against the red Sox, another iconic team uh it was a thing of of beauty uh, i i was trembling it was like being in a in a temple in a way and it just seemed that I was in some place rare and beautiful, even though you could buy a ticket for it every time it was open. Uh, it had been inaccessible to me. 
So, you know, every time I went back, I still, I maybe not quite as intense a feeling, but I still had that feeling. And, you know, I went there with my, my the girlfriend, when I started dating at Windsor, we would go all the time. Uh, when I graduated from university, my parents came down for it. We went to a tiger game there for the world series. I went with my brother on his birthday that year. We went, you know, when I broke up with the first girlfriend and had another one, I took her to tiger stadium. The, I, when I, the, my wife now, when we started dating, I, I took her to tiger stadium. My best friend and I went all the time when we could, my last time to tiger stadium, I went with my best friend. And one of the things I realized writing the book is if I loved somebody, I took them to Tiger Stadium and I thought it was essential in getting to know me while it was open because being a fan of the team was such a part of my, a part of my life and my, and my identity. But I do have a story of, about Yankee Stadium for you too. Go for it. So my older brother got a job in uh, New York City in the early 90s. He was in finance. So my mom and dad and I went down to visit him. And of course, the first thing I thought was, uh, you know, I want to go to Tiger Stadium or Tiger Stadium, Yankee Stadium. So we went into New York City. We're walking around and I asked my mom and dad, do you want to go to Yankee Stadium tonight? And they both said yes, because I got my sports fandom from them. But my mom said, well, how do we get there? And we were near Grand Central Station. So I said, well, just walk in and ask. So I walked up to the information desk and I said, how do I get to Yankee Stadium? And there was a woman in there who said, well, it's very easy. You just take the number four train. The number four train goes up. You get off that there. So I walked back to my mom and said, it's easy. We get on the number four train, takes us right to Yankee Stadium. My mom was not convinced. She was nervous being in New York City. <laughs> she said, well, ask him if it's safe to be on the subway. I said, mom, she goes, no, just, just ask. So I walked back and said, listen, I'm with my mom. She's wondering if it's, it's safe to go on the subway. And the information desk lady looked at me kind of blankly and said, well, millions of people ride the subway every day. Yeah, it's safe to get on the subway. So I walked back to mom and said, millions of people ride the subway every day. It's safe to get on the subway. We just have to go over there and take it. And uh, my mom said, oh, I don't know. Would we be better off taking a cab? Maybe we should take a cab. I said, mom. And she said, just just go ask if it's if it's safer to take a cab. I said, mom, she said it's safe. Just, just go. You know, it's hard to say no to your mom. So I walked back up to the desk and I said to the woman, listen, I know you said it's safe to take the subway with my mom. She's really nervous. She's wondering if we'd be better off taking a cab or we better off taking a cab to Yankee Stadium in the subway. And the information desk lady looked at me and said in her best New York accent, you a man, be a man. <laughs> so I walked back to my mom and said, we are getting on that subway. And five minutes later, we were in a cab. It must be a mom thing. <laughs> Now across town, at that time anyway, before both stadiums were leveled, the Mets played in Shea Stadium. Now for me, strictly from a blind person's perspective and the perspective of a guy carrying a ton of equipment, that was one godless walk from the subway to Shea Stadium. But you had a very different and very interesting perspective on Shea Stadium. Yeah, I mean, I'll say one thing about Shea's stadium. It asked for a commitment from you. Like Mets fans were committed not just to the team for the way they played and the way they struggled, but, you know, getting to that stadium on the long ride up there, um, 
getting to, uh, you know, it's was never a beautiful place. So, you know, if you were a Mets fan and you went there, you loved the Mets. And I have, you know, I've had a couple of good experiences in, in Shea stadium. The first one was going with uh, my wife and my brother, Jim, the older brother, his wife and two kids. And we got tickets in the upper deck and um, you know, I was all, I had a Mets hat. I bought Mets hats for the kids. We were all Mets stop. And um, these people sat in front of us, two young people in Mets gear. And they started, you know, chatting with us. And the next thing I know, Mr. Met shows up and he's got a pizza and he's got four tickets for the lower bowl. So yeah, we had, we headed down to the lower bowl and four seats, but there were six of us. So we had to abandon my older brother and his <laughs> wife while I went downstairs with my wife and my niece and nephew. And uh, it was 2000. So we may have all had cell phones. I, I can't remember. Anyway, I sort of looked around the area uh, and walked back up with you know the four tickets and we managed to bring them down we all sat down there but that was uh that was a great chance to show off it made me look good in front of my niece and nephew on the baseball lifer podcast with craig colby the author of all caps stories that justify an outrageous hat collection a book that came out in june of last year it's available on amazon and in 1990, you and your buddies took the kind of incredible baseball road trip that I, I wish would have been possible for me, oh, but I was working in a factory, and that wasn't going to happen until I became a pro. And then it was doing it for a living as opposed to just kicking up your heels and raising hell, which you guys did on this 1990 road trip. Yeah, well, I was working in sports television at the time. And my first job in TV was watching highlight packs and watching games and turning them into highlight packs for sports desk, which later became sports center. And I got a promotion, which meant I could survive on the job. But the first thing I wanted to do was take a baseball trip. And a friend of mine was the statistician for the blue Jays. He had been to Comiskey park and he said, you have to see Comiskey park. So my best friend, Dave came down and a couple of guys from TSN and we arranged this road trip, <clears throat> rented a van, drove from Toronto, old Comiskey. We're going to see Comiskey and Wrigley. There was an overlap, one of the rare ones where we could go to both. We drove overnight mm -hmm. on a Sunday and we're there on Monday. And I may mix up who we saw which day, but I believe our first game was at Comiskey Park. And, you know, I knew it was outdated before I went in. But I also knew it was the first big stadium of its kind, right? So we walked in. You could see the new Comiskey, which they called it back then, being built in the distance. We walked in and it was it was like somebody had painted a cave white. It was like concrete bunkers where they sold souvenirs <laughs> and I bought like a sweatshirt or something. But we walked out behind home plate, with the perfect place to enter the field. And we walked up and you could see the field, you know, the bevel of the field in front of you and that 1950s scoreboard that they had up there. And one of the beautiful features about old Comiskey is that in the back wall, they were cut little arches that the kind of arches you would see that would hold stained glass windows. But beyond them were trees. 
So the, the stadium was small. It had the pillars which brought the upper deck close to the field and the lower deck wasn't that big. But being inside the stadium with a beveled green field, the old scoreboard open, and then seeing the trees in the back wall gave you the feeling of being inside and outside at the same time. It added to the pastoral element. And I remember actually gasping. I lost my breath. It was so beautiful. And then we sat down and watched the game. We made a big sign that the Blue Jays were playing. So we made a big sign, TSN on vacation. And uh, we got on the broadcast that night. But our friend who worked for the Blue Jays <laughs> did us a real solid. He got a plastic cup and scooped out a bunch of dirt from the Comiskey Field infield, which we divided amongst ourselves and all of us still have. So having that piece of baseball history with us. Uh, you know, a feat that we tried to duplicate at the end of St Tiger Stadium, uh, County Stadium in Milwaukee, and Yankee Stadium as well. So that was our Comiskey experience. It was beautiful. And then, you know, Wrigley Field is amazing on its own. And we sat for the first game in Wrigley Field in the upper deck on the first base side. And I brought my binoculars so that we could see the game more closely. But being young men, we also looked at the rooftop, rooftops across left field. They were keeping track of a party that was going on there, particularly a group of attractive young women. So in between innings, we passed the field glasses around and see what was going on on the roof. Naturally. And then, natural, right? <laughs> and so the friend next to me mm -hmm. at one point grabbed the binoculars and he's, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, the blonde in the pink top is pouring a beer and he's giving it to Dave Stiff. And Dave Stiff was a guy we worked at with TSN. No idea that he was going to be there. But Dave Stiff was also, you know, he belonged to a frat. He was like the ultimate party guy. So at one, in one sense, it made no sense for him to be there. And in another sense, who else would be there? So we just took turns watching Dave Stiff. We didn't know he was going to be there. We just took... Uh, turns watching Dave Stiff in between innings at this party. So afterwards we, you know, left the stadium and went over and yelled for him to come down. And he came down a little overserved and said that, oh yeah, he had been there. They were having the all-star game there that year. And he had done a story on it. And he'd done a story on these rooftop patios. And he just coincidentally happened to be in town for a frat convention and brought them a videotape to the owner of the place the day that they had a game. It was very opportunistic, but of course they invited him up, and that was uh, that was one of the great moments from that trip was seeing our friend doing what only he knew how to do. Final question for Craig Colby, the author of All Caps, a book that came out last June about an outrageous collection that he's got. Now, in 1993, I met Mickey Lolich up in London, Ontario, and you got to meet after his playing days were done, Al Kaline. Tell me about Al. Al Kaline. I've met Mickey Lodich too through Detroit Tiger Fantasy Camp. But one of the great experiences from working at TSN is uh, you got to meet some of the athletes. So while I was there, I came up with the idea for a story on players who'd never played in the minors. Because at the time, John Olerud was with the Blue Jays. He had never played in the minors. Dave Winfield was still playing, never played in the minors. But it was really an excuse to meet Al Kaline, who had never played in the minors. And the story was in different eras, people 
made the majors went straight to the majors for different reasons in the era i was doing the story and it was college ball uh al killian was a bonus baby if you paid so much money for someone they had to go straight to the majors so i uh pitched the story they said go ahead and they said uh, you know call Al Kaline and set up the story. So I called the hotel room. We knew where it was and he picked up. I thought this couldn't be that easy. So, you know, I asked him if he'd be okay with an interview. And he said, yeah, meet me down in the batting cage at six o'clock. So I went down immediately. It was like one in the afternoon. I immediately got my shirt and tie on and went down there and said, make sure my media pass is ready right now, right now. And I stood there like nobody's there at that point. There's no media. There's just like the grounds crew and players going out, warming up. And I'm standing there with my media bag and my shirt and tie and my pass. And I, Al, uh, Jack Morris was kind of glaring at me. What are you doing here? And gradually the stadium filled up with players and everyone. And they opened and closed the roof. And it was a novelty then. I think the Olympic Committee was there. And I just waited and waited. And some of my friends worked at TSN, asked what they were doing. And they were excited for me. And six o'clock comes, no LKLA. And one of my colleagues said, you should go back and get him. I said, no, Al Kaline said, he'll be here. He'll be here. At 6.15, Al Kaline comes out of the dugout and I'm standing a fair distance away. So I start to walk over and then I stop and think, right now, Al Kaline is wondering, I wonder where Craig Colby is. It's a pretty heady thing for a kid from Michigan. So I walked over to him and I had his baseball card in my wallet for years, just in case I had a chance to meet him at some point. So I walked over and said, hi, Mr. Kalen. Craig Colby said, I was just looking for you. What a better, what better thing could he have said to me? So we shook hands. I walked him over to the spot where our camera set up. We did the interview, like a total pro that he was at everything. He's a little taller than me. He looked down at me for the interview, but then he gave me a great eye line off the camera for the answers. I probably asked him five questions. Uh, I thanked him, shook hands. Didn't bring out my baseball card, didn't ask for an autograph, didn't break the the contract, social contract you have as a media member and a player. Uh, and I was just happy that I got to have this incredible professional interaction, you know, with one of, with Mr. Tiger, you know, was named after him. So that story's in the book uh, with one of my TSN hats. That was that was my Mr. Tiger story. And our guest on the Baseball Lifer podcast has been Craig Colby. I got to read a goodly chunk of the book earlier today. The book is all caps, stories that justify an outrageous hat collection. And they certainly do, particularly the baseball stories from my point of view. But there's stories about football. There's stories about hockey, the Maple Leafs. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And Craig, thank you for taking some time to share with me. Well, I really appreciate it. And I would just add, Don, and when we've covered a lot of the really uh, happy sports stories, it goes in, the book goes into much more depth in there that uh, into the, a lot of the real human experiences, some that will make you laugh and some that will make you cry. And by the end of the book, you'll have a greater appreciation for the role sports plays in our lives, but really what the most important things in our lives are. It's a big promise to make, but that's what people are getting out of the book. Back with a wrap in a minute on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Back with you following our interview with Craig Colby on the Baseball Lifer podcast. And as promised, that was a lot of fun. 
since the time I interviewed him, I've been able to hear Craig on another podcast, Michigan and Trumbull, with Alex Freeman and Luke Jaconis, the guys I had on this podcast a while ago. And he did another excellent interview with those guys. Before I go on to next week's show, I want to say howdy to our friends listening on Snowman Multimedia. This is only the second week that Snowman has been a part of our group. And so, welcome. Hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to tell me something about it, suggest a podcast subject, anything like that, contact me at don at thebaseballlifer.com. Let me know that you're listening on Snowman, or let me know wherever else you might be listening. Next week, our guest is a lady who was a sports commentator for a lot of years with different stations and ultimately the big one, ESPN. And she also has been a writer and a sports official in her time. She even went to umpiring school, although she wasn't able to crack the code, if you will, and become an umpire. She'll talk to you about that. Her name is Anne Montgomery. And so Anne will be with us next week on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Until next week, this is Don Wardlow. Have a good day. Music.